let me share my story. I still have a lot of growing to do. I still have so many more things that I want to accomplish, but I just thought I, I do have things to share. My immigration here, this, you know, being a third culture kid and how you, you know, take what you grew up with and now you're in a new environment. How do you deal with that? And how, you know, the purpose of the book is how do you succeed at work, but also everything else you love to do outside of work? How do you integrate those and still be, um, you know, a badass at your job, but also a badass outside of that? And I talk a lot about wellness. I talk about the things that I've struggled with. Because a lot of times people always talk about their wins, you know, the things they've accomplished. Uh, I've published the New England Journal or I got promoted. But I think the things that I learned the most from are the things that I've struggled with. When saving lives is what you do, your standards are anything but standard. In fact, you set them higher than most to deliver results that patients can depend on. You refuse to compromise. We couldn't agree more. We are Edwards Life Sciences, and like you, we believe that good is never good enough. Rising to the challenge of today's TAVR patients isn't just a mission, it's a commitment. And because you set a higher standard, we set our sights on meeting you there. Welcome to the higher standard, your standard. Learn more at edwardstaver.com. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD from the Cleveland Clinic. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, this is an incredible episode or is going to be one. I can promise all of you we've been wanting to do this recording for a while. Um, but, you know, we've, we both have had, uh, you know, I think... Um, you know, obligations maybe on the personal front or on the professional front. But, you know, here we are on a late Sunday evening and, you know, I can't thank her enough for doing this for us at this late hour on a weekend. Uh, so my guest uh, today on the show is uh, Dr. Nasreen Ibrahim. Um, Dr. Ibrahim is an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist by training. Um, she is the director of research at Innova Heart and Vascular Institute, um, and is a recent author, has joined the Cardiology Author Club, um, as I've, I've begun to call it. Uh, she, she recently published her first book titled Spark Plug, uh, which was released in May. And we're going to talk to Nasreen more about that. Uh, but, you know, more importantly, um, or I think another important facet to her research is that, uh, you know, what uh, interests her and, and her focus is, access to care, uh, you know, advanced heart failure care for communities that are marginalized. So uh, an extremely important mission. And I think uh, from what I've read on social media, um, the proceedings from the sale of Nasreen's book will go toward her mission uh, to, st to, to support her mission, you know, through her nonprofit. So I think in terms of the themes, it's, it's very similar. You know, I'm, I'm an author and a poet as well. I have a nonprofit as well. So um, I think I, I really resonated with, with that theme when she posted that on her social media account. So without much further ado, Nasreen, welcome on the show. And thanks a lot for doing this for us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been awesome watching you and your career and the things that you've done and kind of merging art with medicine. It's incredible to watch. And people like you motivate me to say, you know, we don't need to stay in these bubbles that they put us in in medicine. There's more um, to the world than just the science part of it. There's the art part of it, too, and kind of the wellness and the well-being and the worlds that um, we live in outside of the hospitals and how we can merge those. So thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, no, like, you know, likewise, the honor is mine and the, you know, I, I share the excitement. So, Nasreen, uh, let's begin uh, by asking you, you know, how did all this begin for you, you know, in terms of a career in medicine? Tell us more about the the upbringing and sort of the roots uh, where all this started, you know, in terms of how the seeds of medicine were sown um, in, in your life. 
So I always start by saying my parents are both physicians, but never at any point in my childhood did they want me to be a physician. And it's and it's funny, up until the night before my medical school orientation was going to start, my dad said, are you sure you want to do this? There's so many other things that you can do. Are you sure you want to be a doctor? And so I was actually born in Saudi Arabia because that is where my dad works. He's an oncologist. He's actually still there. Um, my mom is originally Egyptian. My dad is Sudanese. Uh, but for them, he went to medical school in Egypt. And for him, um, he was looking for opportunities to better himself and also not be treated um, like a second class citizen. Because at that time, um, it was difficult for people who were not Egyptian to succeed in medical school and even after medical school as physicians there. So he um, left Egypt, uh, did some residency and fellowship training, and then they ended up in Saudi Arabia. And that's where I was born. And I lived there until I was 15 years old before I immigrated to the U.S. Um, my mom didn't work very long. She decided to have four children and she wanted to stay home and take care of us. But my entire life, I would see how much my dad would give to his patients and how um, really, medicine was his entire world other than his family. And uh, I just would go to the hospital with him and I would see how much people would love him, how he would talk to his patients. And one particular story from my childhood, I just remember we were going to this bookstore in Saudi Arabia called Jarir. It's uh, a famous bookstore there. And there was a man standing outside Jarir bookstore and he saw my dad and he said, you saw me in the hospital, you are my oncologist, and I can't afford the medications. And so my dad took the paper prescription from him and said, don't worry about it. This is my phone number. We'll figure it out for you. We'll figure out how you can pay for these medications because the patient that was outside the bookstore was a non-Saudi citizen. And so that kind of story sticks with me forever that um, there was this man that my dad had seen in the hospital and he ran into him outside a bookstore in the middle of the street and he just had to figure out a way to help this man pay for his medications. And so all of these lessons that um, I had seen as a child had made me certain that this is what I wanted to do. If I could be half the physician that my dad was, that this is what I wanted to do. But they never wanted me to do it because they said the road to, you know, train in medicine is a long one. You're going to study all the time. You have to take exams for the rest of your life. Your life is going to be very stressful. So we want to be sure uh, that this is what you want to do. And I, my mom l recently told me, she said, every time you would say you wanted to be a doctor, I would be thinking, oh no, um, I'm not sure I want this life for you. And like I said, up until the night before medical school started, my dad was making certain that this is what I wanted to do. And I did medical school. I thought I was going to be an oncologist like my dad because I wanted to help people that, you know, had terminal um, diagnoses. But I ended up falling in love with cardiology and I picked advanced heart failure and transplant. And it's funny, people say that I picked the oncology of cardiology because a lot of our patients are end stage and um, sometimes we can help them and sometimes we have to figure out how to help them die with dignity. And I've never looked back and said, I wish I... I did something else other than medicine, even on the hard days. We all have hard days where we say, I hope I wish I, I did something else. But when I sit down and I look back at the things that we're able to do, the lives we're able to touch, I don't see myself doing anything other than what I'm doing now. You know, first off, you know, when you said that you're doing the oncology of cardiology, I sort of was about to about to say that, that, you know, in, in terms of um, the prognosis for heart failure, uh, you know, particularly end-stage heart failure. I mean, its mortality is 50%. Um, and it's, it's very, it's actually worse than, than, than some of the, some of the cancers. So, you know, and, and it's, it's extremely, it's, it's an extremely important area of, of medicine, you know, let alone cardiovascular medicine that you've chosen to specialize in. And I'm sure you, you're going to do incredible things and you are doing incredible things and, you are you will continue to do incredible things in in the field of heart failure uh, but you know coming back to your story uh, it, it resonates with a lot of um, I think physician kids and, and I am one of them um, in, in that you know uh, not not realizing 
I, I think our parents don't realize that they're, I mean, I think for every child, a parent is an impressionable personality, but I think more so with physician kids, you know, you have a hero at, in the house you have, you have, who, with whom you are, you know, growing up and, you know, watching them and, and, and see how they conduct themselves and see how much they're loved and how much, with how much adulation people look up to them. You know, I think that's very attractive as a kid. At least it was to me. I'm sure it was for, it was, it was for you as well, you know, um, you know, given some of the examples that you've shared. Um, and I think it's it just it's 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 tough then to not pursue a career in medicine. Um, I mean, you know, I think my emotions were very similar. I thought I was hearing sort of my story uh, when when you were when you were reciting yours. Um, so, you know, I, I really resonated with that. You know, thanks for sharing that with us. Um, so t- tell us about the sojourn then in, in, in the U.S. after you, I mean, you're a teenager, so that's, I, I'm, I'm assuming that's an exciting age to come to the U.S. Yeah, it was total culture shock because uh, as, you know, non-Saudi citizens growing up in Saudi Arabia, we lived in these compounds. So in the compounds, um it was almost like a little America in the compound. You kind of sort of did um, whatever you wanted to do. There was less restrictions than if you were living outside the compounds. There was other expatriates, meaning um, non-Saudi citizens that I grew up with. We had known each other. We had made friends since we were born, essentially. And so I was comfortable there. I had you know, been in the same school since I was three up until 10th grade. And now my parents are saying, it's time to think about college, where are my children going to have the best opportunities? And because we weren't Saudi citizens, we were Sudanese citizens, we weren't going to have the same educational opportunities as Saudi citizens. And then we didn't know what life was going to be like in Egypt. We never knew what life would be like in Sudan because we hadn't lived in any of those. And so it was, you know, third culture kids that were, were living in a country that has taken us in and we had an amazing childhood. But now when we're thinking about college and the best opportunities, so my parents applied for a citizenship to the U.S. and um, we got the green card and we immigrated. I was 15 years old. Um, the hardest part about all of this, other than leaving my friends behind and people I'd known since my childhood, was that my dad wasn't going to come with us. And for a 15-year-old daddy's little girl, that was my first real heartbreak. And the reason my father didn't immigrate with us was because he was already established in his career. It was going to be impossible for him to come and start all over, do residency again in the U.S., And so they have a lot more vacation time. So my mom was the one that brought us and my dad would come to the U.S. a lot and visit us um, when he had vacation. But it was really tough, that transition. And I remember, and probably this is how I deal with relationships now in life. I remember that was my first time saying, I'm never going to let anybody break my heart like my dad broke my heart by not coming with us to America. And we ended up coming to Cincinnati, Ohio, Um, because my parents knew people in Cincinnati. And uh, I did two years of high school, complete culture shock, because it wasn't a very diverse high school. When I went to University of Cincinnati for college, I absolutely loved it. People from, you know, all uh, diverse backgrounds, people from all walks of life. I, those were probably some of the, the four happiest years of my life were in college. And I just didn't want to leave because everything, it had took me so long to get used to life in America that I was so afraid to leave Cincinnati. So I did most of, I did medical school there. I did my residency there. I did my first fellowship there. But then I knew it was time to leave. Um, When I wanted to do my heart failure and transplant fellowship, I said, it's time to go. And that's when I went to Denver and then went to Boston. And then eventually now I'm in. Uh, DC and I practiced in Northern Virginia, but the transition was tough. Everything from the way the toothpaste tasted to how schools were. And you get this idea of what America is like from TV. And it's not the same when you come to America, Uh, but it was hard. And it was probably the first time in my life I would say I was depressed. You took me, you took a teenager 
from a place where, you know, she was so comfortable and I had so many friends and I'm popular and now you're bringing me somewhere and my dad's not coming with me. And it was a very, very tough two years of high school before things got much better when I was in college. Yeah. So a couple, couple of things, you know, so uh, uh, just an incredible, um, you know, personal anecdote to share uh, and, and a couple of things that once again, you know, if not resonate with me in person, I think resonate overall sort of when we talk about the Eastern culture, right? And that is the, the I think the value um, one ascribes to sacrifice, you know, for family, which um, I know is, you know, I mean, I, 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 so when you were sharing that anecdote with me, it was not foreign to me, but, you know, like, you know, you, you sort of, when you share this with, with people who've been born and raised in the West, and, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to compare and say, say that one is better than the other, but, you know, I think just that, uh, you know, the, the amount of sacrifice, uh, I think people who have origins from the East do is just, uh, I think maybe may come across as a, as a revelation to people who are born and raised in the West or in the West, or at least that's my perception. And you know, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. There, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure if you've, you when you've shared the story with with your friends in the U.S., uh, they would have been you know like shocked, um, or, or or maybe not. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, I think it's I think they were shocked. But even me, I didn't realize how huge of a sacrifice it was until I got older. And I think about it, and I say we split the family. My dad stayed behind and sent us to the U S so we can have an equal opportunity and a, and an excellent opportunity at an education. And I was talking to my mom a few months ago and she said, you know, your father didn't realize that you and your siblings were never going to come back. He thought he was sending you to get an education and that you would come back and live in the middle East, may wherever, um, that may be, but I didn't realize how huge of a sacrifice it was for him to stay back in Saudi Arabia without his family, without his wife, without his kids and work um, and make sure that he's able to provide with a, for us living in another country. And now, you know, two households, it's not like we were poor, we were well taken care of, we had what we needed, but it's really it was a huge sacrifice because it affected us emotionally. It affected the way we, like I said, the way we deal with relationships, um, but it also made us much stronger kids and adults in terms of being able to foster these long distance relationships and being able to be put in a completely new environment and still figure out a way, not just to survive, but to thrive. Uh, so a very, a very different way of growing up and I'm not sure like you said people that haven't done it themselves are able to um, really know what it feels like to be an immigrant it's it's hard it's tough and I still think about you know when people say that was your first heartbreak uh, six almost 16 year old leaving her dad it was it was tough and um, you don't realize how tough it was until you get older and see how it affected lots of aspects of your uh, adulthood too. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, I was married in 26 when I, when I came here. Um, and um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, when I look back and when I think about those moments, I, I still shudder because, uh, you know, they were emotionally very challenging for, you know, because again, in India, uh, it's, um, it's a joint family system. Um, or, you know, at least in Delhi, where my family is, you know, we have these homes and families live together. Um, and, you know, for, for me to live, uh, to, to leave the house and move to another country was just, was, was completely like, it was, it was a ridiculous idea for my parents because, you know, they were like, everything is set. My father is a cardiologist and, you know, he has a, a great practice back home and, I was finishing up residency in one of the premier institutes in the country, which was in Delhi. And, you know, we had just gotten married and now, so they, it was just, it was tough for them to fathom that why would he leave all this to go to another country? Um, 
so I, 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 I hear you. It's, it's, unless you have lived that, um, that emotion, it's maybe some people can relate to it if you tell them the story, but the ones who've lived it are the ones that are going to connect with you like instantly. And the other thing that you mentioned too about family. So cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, when you immigrate, when you immigrate by yourself, you really don't have that. And so when, when you're in America, it, you, you find friends that become family and you learn the importance of friendships. And for me, most of my friends I'm super close to, and I consider family. And so you end up picking your family. That's going to be your family in America. So that part of it too, not just leaving the parents, like you said, it's uncles, aunts, cousins. It's very tough and can be isolating. I, I could not agree more, which is a great segue to the other question. And, and that is, uh, you know, you mentioned how America is on TV for someone who's not living in America. And then you come to America and it's not what you saw on TV. So d- describe to me what, what were the differences which were very palpable and what were some of the more subtle differences when, when you came to the U.S.? I think the funny thing is when I was a child and I came here, from what I had seen on TV, I just thought in my high school there was going to be gangs and fights and <laughs> there was none of that when I got here. Um, also, there there was everybody was saying there's no culture in America. You're going to forget who you are and where you came from. Your kids are going to become Americanized. They're going to forget, um, you know, how they grew up and what their roots are and their ethnic origins and those sorts of things people would say to us. And we came here and America, not to be cliche, is a melting pot. There's a little bit of everything and you you don't lose yourself. Yes, you become different. If I had, you know, grown up in Saudi Arabia, would I have been a totally different person? Probably. But you know, the gangs at the school obviously wasn't there, but also the losing your culture and losing who you were I felt like there was more pride actually when I came here and I said, you know, this is my background. I'm half Egyptian. I'm half Sudanese. I grew up in Saudi Arabia. It's more exciting. And, you know, you find ways to preserve uh, your culture and the things you grew up with. And I, I really think that that's a misconception that people say when you come here, you lose who you are and where you came from. Yeah, no, I, I don't think you lose. Um, I mean, I don't think you lose. I, I agree with you. You don't lose yourself. You don't even lose people who you think you will lose. Um, you know, because, you know, I, like I think of it like people who you've spent meaningful time with or have had meaningful conversations with sort of become a part of who you are, you know, in, in terms of the evolutionary process of who you are. So I think you you add on more elements to who you are, but... I don't think you, I, I completely agree with you. You, you never lose yourself. Um, so, so that, so, you know, now, now coming back to your so sort of medical journey. So, which, I mean, this was a, this was a great detour into your personal life and all the, all the challenges and sacrifices your family made and you made. Um, but so, so in Cincinnati is when you, where you did college and then you stayed on at University of Cincinnati for, for residency and fellowship. Tell us some of those experiences and, you know, maybe sort of what in medicine led you to pursue a career in cardiovascular medicine. I think that's an important topic coming from a woman of color. Um, because, you know, as we know, unfortunately in cardiovascular medicine, even though we are getting better in this country, we've traditionally struggled in recruiting more women, particularly women from diverse ethnic backgrounds. So you sort of I think check check incredible boxes and you know are are are, are a role model in in so many ways for <laughs> so many younger women who want to pursue a career in cardio, cardiology that this is an important question to answer for anyone who's out there listening who wants to be uh, the next Nisreen Ibrahim. <laughs> That's very very kind of you. Uh, but I would say I did. I knew I wanted to go into internal medicine because I had my heart set on becoming an oncologist because of what I had seen, the lives um, that my dad was able to play a little role in and change and improve for a lot of 
patients that saw him, he was seeing his uh, specialty is breast and lung cancer. And, you know, some patients did very well and he was able to help patients live better lives and some weren't so lucky. But I just saw that he was able to transform some lives. And if the ones that he wasn't able to play a role in, that he helped them die with dignity. And I just remember him having such frank conversations with even young patients. So I went in thinking that's what I was going to do. But then I just fell in love with the CCU and I started discovering cardiology um, when I was actually a fourth year med student. Um, There was a cardiologist that allowed me to go to the cath lab with him. And it was just an awesome experience. And the the high of, um, you know, getting a patient in with a STEMI and, and an arrest patient in the cath lab and opening up the vessel, it just seemed like a and the ability to really change a person's trajectory in a very acute way. So that was fourth year medical school where I rotated in the cath lab. And then I said, "Hmm, this seems like maybe it's a cool part of medicine as well. So I was already matched into internal medicine and just absolutely loved um, the CCU. I had incredible mentors. Actually, most of my mentors have been men And I saw that in cardiology, there was so much you could do, whether it was prevention wasn't big at the time, but it it was imaging, whether if you wanted to do procedures and you wanted to be an interventionalist or if you wanted to do EP. And then there was this whole heart failure and transplant. And what I love the most about advanced heart failure is the ability to take care of surgical patients, but not necessarily be a surgeon because you are taking care of post-operative patients, post-transplant and post-LVAD. Um, and the just the transformation of life with a, with a heart transplant, I really couldn't get, there was nothing going to change my mind after seeing a heart transplant patient. You meet them. And they're at the very end of their life. They're not really able to do much. And they're just waiting for this opportunity to get a second chance at life. And they get lucky and you're able to transplant them. And it's just this kind of rebirth. I always tell patients, you know, you should be celebrating two birthdays every year when you get transplanted. And their life on the other end of that, on the other side, is just this incredible transformation. And I love... um, in specifically in advanced heart failure and transplant, the long-term relationships with the patients, because you see them really frequently. Um, A lot of patients are sick and they need lots of attention. And they're so sick that a lot of other clinicians don't want, um, are afraid to manage them. So you end up almost being their primary care doctor. So I love the long-term relationships. Um, I was the only woman in my fellowship class. We had a class of six and I was the only woman. And I didn't find that intimidating. I found that actually empowering to say, I can hang with the boys. I can play ball with the boys and I can show you I'm just as good as you are. So it was more like a challenge for me rather than uh, made me feel like I didn't belong. Um, There's sometimes, of course, where, you know, you, you were reminded that you need to speak up and pull up a chair and sit at the table and uh, make sure you ask questions and you speak up and all those sorts of things so that you can be in this boys club and so that people know that you are not intimidated and you have a voice. But all along, I felt um, there was, again, that it was the right career for me, the right field for me. And when I got a little further down in my career is when I started having more Uh, women um, in cardiology as mentors. And that's what I hope to be for the next generation of cardiologists. But it's it's not intimidating. People always try to discourage me and say, well, you should have gone into pediatrics that your life would have been easier or you should have done something easier. And I say, all of medicine has its challenges, no matter if you're a pediatrician or if you're a trauma surgeon, you have to do whatever you love to do. And you have the ability Um, to figure out a career that works for you, works for your personal life and how to integrate your personal life with your work life. But you have to pick something based on what you love to do. And cardiology is just incredible. Um, You can't live without your heart. It's the most important organ in the body. And just within cardiology, if you just look around, there's people doing all sorts of things from people that are interested in digital health to podcasters, authors, to interventionalists. There's just so much we can do and we really need to change what cardiology looks like so that it can better represent the patients that we take care of. 
Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. So, um, tell us some. Tell us uh, about uh, some of the time you spent then in Advanced Heartfelder Fellowship in in Denver. And uh, I know you were at the Mass General um, after that, and uh, you know your transition to DC. Before we get before we get into the 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 interesting conversation on spark plug. So I went to Denver and it was the first time leaving Cincinnati. And I would say that was the year I grew up. That was the year I went to Denver. I didn't know a single soul in Denver. Dr. Joanne Lindenfeld was in Denver and she's one of the queens of heart transplant. And I thought it was going to be an incredible opportunity to train under somebody like Dr. Joanne Lindenfeld. And also it, took a lot of courage for me to say, I'm leaving the safety net of Cincinnati after kind of this traumatizing experience of moving from Saudi Arabia to Cincinnati, finally feeling like Cincinnati's home, America's home. I said, let me go, um, go somewhere else, go somewhere where I can continue to grow, go to a great transplant program. So I spent a year in Denver and it was just lots of growth. I had to get out of my comfort zone, had to do things I normally wouldn't do to go out and meet people. The training was incredible. And I just remember the words of my program director, Dr. Andreas Breeke. The first day I met him, the first day of work, he said, this year is going to change you forever. And I didn't know what he was, what he meant. And I was like, okay, whatever. I don't know what that means, but whatever. But Denver was incredible. The It's just an amazing city. The sun's always shining. Even when it snows, the sun's out. By the time you get off work, the snow is melted. The patients were super sick. Uh, I was on call every other weekend, but I loved it. I learned so much so quickly, and uh, it was just an amazing year. And then by the end of that year, I understood what he meant when he said my life is going to change forever. Uh, because with transplant, uh, you're seeing the extremes of life and death. So when you're sitting there in the middle of the night and you're getting this donor call and they're telling you who the donor is, um, usually a young person, a man or a woman, and it's usually some sort of um, accident or some unexpected death. And a lot of times they're young. We get called with because really good hearts coming from young people, whether it was an accidental overdose or whether the patient or the donor um, died by suicide or a car accident, a skiing accident, all sorts of tragic stories. And you're thinking, what a young life lost. It was lost too soon. Uh, I wonder how their family is dealing with this. And you're sort of creating a picture in your mind of what this individual was like because you get so many details about them because you're assessing whether or not you're going to take the donor um, and then at, on the other end of that, you get to call somebody else and say, Mr. So-and-so or Miss So-and-so, we quote unquote found a heart for you. And there's lots of times there's tears. Um, even the men cry and get emotional. And, you know, you have this opportunity to say you have a second chance at life. So exper experiencing um, my transplant year and hearing the donor stories and until this day when I hear about donor stories and you just say wow life is so short it could be taken from you at any time and I truly learned that I needed to live each day um, fully like it was my last day here and that I didn't need to sweat the small stuff so all the things that we worry about all the things that we stress out about about you know, a failed relationship, a failed exam, um, a, a purse that I can't afford, or those kinds of things are really insignificant when you're constantly faced with um, life and death like that. You realize the, that there's things that matter in life that are much more significant than the things that we spend time worrying about. So that was a transformational year for me. Um, learning to not sweat the small stuff, going to a city that I didn't know a single person, having just an incredible year. It was transformational for me. And then uh, at the end of that year in Denver, I was actually interviewing to go back to the University of Cincinnati. It was going to be like a homecoming that I was going to go back to Cincinnati, take a position there as an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist. And then Dr. Lindenfeld said, um, there's my friend, Dr. Jim Januzzi at the Mass General is looking for a research fellow. What do you think about going to Boston? And I said, 
sure, why not? And I didn't understand why um, somebody who had no Ivy League training, um, you know, would ever get into Harvard and Mass General. And so I didn't tell anybody about this research fellowship opportunity. I went and interviewed in Boston. I only told my brother about this opportunity because I didn't think there was a single bit of a chance that I would get it because I, again, I went to state schools. I had no Ivy League background and I got the fellowship. I ended up calling my parents and telling them I got into a research fellowship at Mass General and they were shocked because they had no idea I was interviewing. So when I got that position, I turned down um, the attending position uh, at the University of Cincinnati. I stayed on faculty there in at Math General for three and a half years, and it was an incredible place to be. I, you know, I can't say enough good things about Dr. Jim Genuzzi and how he really helped me think like a researcher, write like a researcher, and also just gain confidence in myself um, overall and um, opened up a lot of doors for me. And then I got recruited by Chris O'Connor to come to Innova, which is in Northern Virginia, but I physically live in DC. And I just thought, okay, it's time to keep growing. I have nothing's tying me down to Boston. And I was in Boston for five and a half years. And it was just the right timing for me. I felt, okay, I'm reaching a plateau here. I don't feel like I'm growing. What's the next step? And I was having those thoughts. It was actually July of last year. I was having those thoughts about, okay, what's coming next? What's coming next? I'm always trying to grow and keep um, advancing, not just career-wise, but also personally and, um, you know, life-wise. And uh, I got a call a couple months later about an opportunity here. And um, the team here is fantastic and I'm loving DC. And so that's how I'm, I ended up here. Oh, that's, that's terrific. No, I know, I know about uh, Innova because a really, really close friend of mine who I, was brother to me, I think is probably happens to be her colleague, uh, Shashank Sinan, is that is also at Innova. Oh, he's fantastic. Yes, I love him. Yeah, he is awesome. Yeah, so sh- actually, when, when I had to record this podcast, um, uh, I texted Shashank. I said, can you just text me in the screen's number? Um, <laughs> and he's like, um, Ankur wants your number. Is it okay if I give him your number? I was like, sure. <laughs> Yeah, so so that's how because you know we we'd been conversing on Twitter, but I, I wanted to sort of you know get this uh, on on the calendar for you. Uh, so you know that's when I texted Shashank. Uh, but no, I mean it's it's incredible to hear uh, about your journey within cardiovascular medicine and advanced heart failure. And uh, you know you you spent uh, five years in Boston, happens to be my favorite city. I again completely resonate with you. Uh, you know, when someone gets into an Ivy League program for a, for an advanced fellowship, uh, it was sort of the same um, verve or, or emotion for me when I when I uh, matched at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess for my interventional fellowship. And um, I sort of ended up writing about this um, in a paper called Perseverance versus Pedigree, uh, which was published in the European Heart Journal in 2017 when I took up my first faculty position at Case Western. So, you know, again, you know, I think it's the, it's the, it's the same emotion of the immigrant and the, uh, you know, and, and the dreams and the, the yearning to grow, um, that, you know, keeps, uh, keeps us moving. So, you know, very inspirational. Thanks again for sharing those details with us. I'm sure, uh, you know, those who are listening will resonate a lot, you know, because a lot of them are, uh, residents, fellows, early career, um, you know, cardiologists from all across the globe at large. So, you know, thanks again for sharing your very inspiring story. So now that brings me to Sparkplug. Um, so when did the spark go off for you to write Sparkplug? Um, you know, what year and what was sort of the, the underpinning emotion and when did you feel the inspiration to write a book? So I was, I always wanted to write a book and I always thought about writing a book. I love to write. I love to blog. uh, And so I wanted a medium where I didn't have a word limit. And so I went to this Harvard writing, social media and publication course in 2019. 
And I signed up for one of the workshops and the workshop was a book pitch where you had 60 seconds to pitch your book to a bunch of editors and publishers and they would give you feedback. And I was terrified to do that, but I knew I was like, this is my opportunity to see if my idea is silly or if I'm going to be able to publish a book. And I met these two physicians who are actually from Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. We made friends at the conference and I told them I was going to do the book pitch that late afternoon. And could they help me with my pitch? And I had written some things down and just in a phone note uh, section in my iPhone. And we sat down and we practiced the pitch. And I was terrified because it was the first time I was saying out loud to anyone that I wanted to write a book. And it's this whole thing about you know, do I belong here? Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? This whole feeling like an imposter and sitting down with them. We had lunch together that day. I kept practicing the pitch over and over again. And that afternoon I stood up on that stage. I was terrified and um, I delivered my pitch and the feedback I got was phenomenal. Not everybody had uh, pieces of paper and they were scoring you. Of course, not everybody loved it, but the majority of the feedback was incredible. Some of the feedback was I need to, to build a bigger platform so that I could have a bigger audience when I did publish the book. And that gave me the confidence to say, okay, if these people who are publishers and editors, uh, they liked what I had to pitch, then why not write it? And so last year, I met a business coach, uh, Dr. Dreon Birch, and I told him I wanted to write a book, and he connected me with a publisher. And the, the rest is history. Purposely created, pu created Publishing was the group I worked with. They made the process seamless, and I just wrote. I turned off my phone. I had jazz music playing in the background. I was in tears in some of the parts of the book that I wrote. But everything just was flowing. Everything seemed um, so easy to write. And people think, you know, you put so much work into writing. You already do all these other things. You already, you know, are a clinician. You're a researcher. You do these things with the medical societies. And I'm like, this wasn't hard. This was actually so amazing and so freeing to, some, to get some of these stories off my chest and my brother was the only family member that read the book before it was published, gave me some incredible feedback. And I said, let me share my story. I still have a lot of growing to do. I still have so many more things that I want to accomplish. But I just thought I, I do have things to share. My immigration here, this, you know, being a third culture kid and how you, you know, take what you grew up with. And now you're in a new environment. How do you deal with that? And how you know, the purpose of the book is how do you succeed at work, but also everything else you love to do outside of work? How do you integrate those and still be, um, you know, a badass at your job, but also a badass outside of that? And I talk a lot about wellness. I talk about the things that I've struggled with, because a lot of times people always talk about their wins, you know, the things they've accomplished. Uh, I published the New England Journal or I got promoted but I think the things that I learned the most from are the things that I've struggled with, the things that I've had to overcome, the things that are stigmatized, like mental health. Those are the things that I learn. And when I talk to my mentees about the things I've struggled with, you know, you can see them light up and say, wow, thank you for sharing that because this is what I'm also going through. And thank you for normalizing that. So that was the entire basis of my book. How do you... Um, live a life that you're doing the work that you love to do, but you're also living in your purpose. Yeah, no, I, uh, so a lot has resonated here too. Like I think uh, a life of purpose is, um, is a life um, of happiness, you know, because I think if you found your purpose, you found happiness. At least that's how I see it. Um, you know, for me, it's, it's my nonprofit. So you know, I mean, I, I don't get paid for it. I actually have to support it in, you know, through endeavors like, you know, like raising money through this, through this podcast and, 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 and other things. But, um, you know, it's purpose is, is what it, 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 it wakes you up in the morning. It, it, it just energizes you. It, it keeps you going, you know, even when the chips are down and, um, sort of, 
you know, when people are throwing tomatoes at you, uh, and if you're still going, you know, that's purpose. You know, that's how I describe purpose. Um, so, uh, so I mean, it sounds like an incredible read, and I'm d- definitely going to leverage this platform to request you if, if I can get a an autographed copy for myself. Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll probably text you my probably text you my address, or you you can tell me where to get a copy from, and I can I can send it to you for signing it, and then. Maybe you can send it back. I think we should do that. As long as I will send you a copy of my book, as long as you promise to try to make it for my inaugural fundraiser for my nonprofit. I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to. Just, just, just give me the, just send me the details and I'll, I'll promise I'll catch a flight to DC and I'll be there if it's happening at DC. Yes, it'll be in DC because I plan on making DC home for a few years and it will be the inaugural fundraiser and it will be incredible. Oh, I'll, I'll be honored. I'll be honored to be there. Thank you for considering me on the guest list. No, I'll, I'd, I'd love to come for sure. Um, so is, is there an excerpt from the book that you'd like to share with the listenership? Uh, I mean, I, I know you've talked about the theme, but is there anything in particular you'd like, any particular anecdote, you know, any, any particular story that you've written that you'd like to share? Yes, I would say the story about how I learned the meaning of charity. And um, I talked, there's a whole chapter about charity, but there's one story where I talk about when we were children and we would be out as a family, we'd be walking around and my dad, my mom, and sometimes my parents would let us bring friends and we'd be going to a park, an amusement park, or we'd be going to dinner and we would walk past and we would see Uh, people in need, they were experiencing homelessness, or they were asking for money, what my dad would do is we would walk past the people um, that were in need. And then my father would stop and say, Nisreen, here's a few reals, go back and give it to the lady or give it to the man. And I never understood why he did that until I got older and realized, wow, he didn't want like four or six people standing there around this person who is in a really desperate time in their life and make them uncomfortable that we were all standing around and stopping there and then giving them money. So to me, it was the greatest example of preservation of dignity of, um, you know, giving money, but being more discreet with how you're donating. And that's how I look at charity, that you want to preserve a person's dignity. You don't want to have, you know, with social media these days, you don't want to have cameras and say, look at me, I'm feeding um, a bunch of people or I'm donating all my things. And sometimes, you know, when you talk about donations out loud, just as a way to encourage others to donate, that's very different. But I just that was my biggest lesson in preservation of a person's dignity during their hardest time. And my dad always says, you're one mistake away from experiencing homelessness. And so I carry that lesson with me all the time is preservation of dignity for people when they're going through their toughest times um, and just giving without it being such a, you know, showing and that the more you give, the more you will receive in return. And my dad always says, just do good things in the universe without expecting anything in return and God and the universe will pay you back. Yeah, no, that's, um, gosh, I, you know, it, it just seems that we've so much in common in, in terms of, you know, the, the themes, uh, the spiritual themes around which we've, we've woven our actions is, is, is very similar. So, you know, I, I would be honored at, at some point in time to meet your parents because, you know, I think the upbringing and the values that they've tried to instill in you as a person are very similar to the values that have been instilled in me, uh, you know, by my parents. So again, I think there's that Eastern influence, um, which which I think is is the common thread. Um, any any closing remarks for the podcast, and any closing remarks for our listeners who, you know, you know, maybe um, you know, early career cardiologists or you know, even established cardiologists or, you know, fellows in training, residents, house staff, any any closing remarks for the listenership? I would say live life on your own terms. 
break the rules, make sure you're happy and you're content and that you're doing everything for yourself, that you truly love what you're doing. You're not living your life for anybody else. And to remember when, when opportunities um, don't find them, their way to you and you feel like you've missed out on something, just wait. There's always something bigger waiting for you. And sometimes when you experience these lessons, I like to call them lessons, not losses, you don't realize at the time, but there's always something bigger waiting for you. And it's part of the plan. You just have to keep trudging on, but just really live life of the way you want it to be and just keep breaking rules. Oh, and that's an incredible message. Thank you so much, Nisreen. It's It's been a pleasure having you. Um, it's been 50 minutes and I, I don't know where these 15 minutes, 50 minutes went. I mean, it just flowed. It was beautiful, beautiful to have you on the show. Thanks again for your time. Um, you know, please feel free to share, um, uh, you know, amongst all your followers, you know, on various social media accounts. And uh, hopefully I will see you in person on your inaugural nonprofit event. I can't wait. And this truly felt like two friends just having a conversation. So I can't wait to meet you in person. Thank you for this opportunity. And I will certainly add you to my invite list for the inaugural fundraiser. I'll be honored. Thank you. And you know, one more thing, I, I just before we, before we hang up, if where do people find your book if they want to get a copy? It's on Amazon, but it's also on Barnes and Noble and there's sparkplugbook.com. They can get a copy directly from me. And the reason that that's a better option is that these other venues, they keep a certain percentage of the profit. And if you buy it directly from me, all of the money goes to my nonprofit and my nonprofit is for patients who need to undergo heart transplant and otherwise qualify medically they have a good social support system, but they can't afford their co-payments. That's where that money is going to go. So it'll help essentially save lives of patients we would not transplant because they don't have the funds to cover transplant. So if you buy it directly from me, more money goes to the charity. So beautiful mission, uh, beautiful cause. Um, we will make certain that the website of the book is displayed on the show notes um, so that, you know, if listeners want to go back and, and purchase directly from you, you know, that's where they should go. Uh, Nasreen, thanks again. It's been an honor. It's been a privilege and a pleasure to have you on the show. And we'll chat more soon. This was great. Thank you. Have a great night. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.